Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam. And I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. We're broadcasting at WCEV 1450 AM. And we are reaching the world live by streaming at www.wcev1450.com. Keep in mind that all of our episodes can be found online, either at RadioIslam.com or wherever you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, TuneIn, Apple, whatever it is, what is it, Apple Play, or obviously I'm, I've just become an Apple person, so I don't know the name for it, but is that it? iTunes, 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 wow, I just really outed myself, but Radio Islam family, uh, Welcome to a new week uh, in this edition of Radio Islam. Uh, if you haven't already done so, make sure that you stop by Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whichever of those platforms you are on. If you're on all of them, you can find Radio Islam at the same username, each space. We are at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. Uh, today's episode will be available tomorrow, inshallah, with God's permission, sometime around noon. And what else do I want to tell you? If you would like to uh, make a, a comment or ask a question, you can do so by calling 312-750-1178. I'm going to slow that down a little bit for you. That is 312-750-1178. And if you just like to inbox us a question, uh, you don't want to make that public, um, feel free to do so. Our Facebook page is up. It's open. And we've got a lot to talk about this evening. Uh, there's a lot going on. And actually, I thought I was going to have to tap dance for you all for a little while. <laughs> but I didn't have to. Um, our good brother, Ahmed Rehab, the executive director of CARE Chicago, um, just a, a phenomenal activist and a voice uh, for uh, civil rights for the Muslim community, um, is in studio with us tonight. So, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. I still do want the tap dance after the show. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but, um, yes, I was just saying that there's a lot that is going on. Um, yeah, so uh, let's just jump right in. <laughs> let's just jump right in. So we got this travel ban that was uh, upheld by the uh, United States Supreme Court today. Well, what happened was the Supreme Court ruled that the full power of the Muslim ban, as we call it, or the travel ban, as they call it, mm-hmm. would be in effect through the litigation process. Okay. So there's still litigation going on, and you better believe it that CARE and the ACLU and others are going to be fighting this in the courts. Um, but until that is adjudicated, unfortunately, what is new as of today is that the full power of the executive bans are going to be in effect immediately. And so I would advise all of our listeners to visit tapus.org. TAP is the Traveler's Assistance Program that we have at CARE um, and check the fact sheet for Muslim Ban 3.0 to know exactly who that affects and how so that they can prepare in advance. If you are under those who are banned, uh, there's not much that we can do because now it is law. But where we can help, we will. And so it's important for people to know um, whether they can travel or not. And even if they're not under the ban, they may face issues. So we would still 
ask them to register on the forms on that website so we can know in advance that they're coming and we can assist them. So don't think just because you're not from those six countries that you are going to be scot-free. Unfortunately, the culture has changed. There's now more um, sort of discretion by the agents at the gates um, that are is a lot more strict, unfortunately. So we won't want to be able to help you. We can't do that unless you fill out the forms in advance. Right, right. So you said that... Um uh, the ban is allowed to take effect even as litigation uh, proceeds. So right now there's a, there are two uh, in lower courts in uh, Hawaii and um, and one also brought by the uh, ACLU. That's correct. 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 Um, and they're expecting, uh, as I was reading, they're expecting for, I guess, judgments to come on those um, what, in the not-too-distant future. And the Supreme Court did say that they expect the lower courts to decide on those um, pending litigation as as swiftly as possible so we hope right. that, that that is the case okay now what was really interesting because it's like i said it's been so much that has happened within the uh past uh, couple of hours today um is that there are also two other countries that are included in this uh said north korea right <laughs> and venezuela Big surprise, <laughs> right yeah and and venezuela like mm-hmm. who would have seen venezuela being a part of this um we see that as smokescreen. Um, with North Korea, there isn't much travel happening anyway for all the obvious reasons. Right. And there's a lot of existing laws and discretionary measures and other things. With Venezuela, it is restricted to a certain class. It isn't for everyone, uh, mostly um, those who are not diplomats and things like that. But, you know, it, both of them are brought into this for the mere reason of being able to argue that this is not a Muslim ban. Right. But when you look at the presidential tweets, and recently he provided more than ample evidence that <laughs> will be brought into the court documents, that he is motivated by a Muslim ban. Every time something happens by an individual or a group that is not connected to the masses of Muslim travelers and citizens in America and around the world, um, he tends to say we need a ban. Right. When he sees what happened in the Sinai recently, a terrible act of terrorism against people who are praying in a masjid. If anything, it shows that this form of terrorism isn't Islamic terrorism, as he insists on labeling it, but rather anti-Islamic terrorism, because these people saw fit not just to attack Muslims and kill them in the hundreds, but to do so while they were in prayer, in an Islamic space, performing an Islamic act of worship on an Islamic holiday, Islamic people. What more could you want as evidence that this is anti-Islamic rather than Islamic? And yet, he hit Twitter saying that we need the Muslim ban as a result of this. So he's connecting these wayward, deviant, non-Muslim, anti-Muslim groups to Islam and Muslims and positioning the ban as a response to those types of acts by these people. You know what I find interesting? Now, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this is how um, is how Islam, quote unquote Islamic terrorism is divorced from the loss of Muslim life and that and I believe I've, I've heard you speak to this before is that Muslims are the main the main victims of Islamic uh, quote unquote yeah. terrorism mm-hmm. absolutely and there, there are several metrics to look at the first is We've been victims longer than anybody else. They've targeted Muslims first. Before they were, you know, um, detonating bombs in Europe or, or, or North America or anywhere else, they were doing so in Muslim-majority countries. Second, 
more Muslims have died at the hands of these terrorists than people of any other faith. The third metric is more Muslims have given life and limb fighting these terrorists than people of any other faith. So when it comes to what are Muslims doing about it, you have the numbers. When it comes to who's being targeted by these groups in the larger amounts of, of numbers, you have, you have those you know, facts and, and, and data. And when it comes to how long it's been happening, it's been happening to us more than anyone else. So you, know, you really have to perform mental gymnastics to pit this deviant group into our corner and to then extend the blame on Islam dumb and Islam itself. Right, right. Uh, do you find it interesting or do you find it a um, just proof of the, of, of the sheer genius of the Islamophobia uh, machine that we are now at a, at a point where uh, the President of the United States can, without, uh, without fact-checking, uh, without any verification... Uh, retweet uh, information that paints Muslims in a picture where they could be the recipients of violence. And I'm speaking speci- mm-hmm. uh, specifically about uh, the, um, what is it, the group Britain First? Yeah, the three videos that he retweeted from this well-known Islamophobic group that even the United Kingdom itself has distanced itself from um, and has really rebuked Trump, you know, the president of the United States. Very embarrassing for the United States. If anything, it shows the, the level of cynicism um, that the presidency is marinating in um, when it comes to not caring about facts, when it comes to just saying whatever the heck he wants to say without any you know, consequences with relative impunity. It also brings to light the fact that this is a rogue individual um, who is flippant and unhinged. You know, if you were the chairman or the executive director or chairwoman or executive director of a non-for-profit, like myself, you know, executive director. You know, I think twice, three times, four times before I tweet something out. I try to fact check. Now, you can still make mistakes, after which you'll be read in the face and you'll apologize. But for someone who has so much more at stake, way more than little me, to not even care, to just put it out there. And then when it happens, when it so happens that it is a lie, that he didn't fact check, and one of the videos um, is, is false, is fake news, and the other two are decontextualized. Um, his spokesperson comes out and says, well, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. The general point is true. I mean, it's, you know, you're no longer operating on the same standards that the rest of us professionals hold ourselves to, whether in the media, whether in politics, you would think, whether in the not-for-profit world, whether you as a journalist or someone who anchors a radio show. And again, I mean, we don't have nearly the same audiences this guy has. On Twitter alone, he has millions. And right. beyond that, you know, billions around the world care about what he has to say. So it's, it's crazy, man. It's, it's really, really crazy and frightening. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it seems that we're, in a, um, we're at a point where uh, our partisan loyalties, um, that they have, huh, I can't believe I'm going to say trumped, but yeah, where they have, they have surpassed our, um, our, our allegiance to principles. Uh, what is your take on... Uh, where are we at as far as the um, the race for uh, Jeff Sessions' vacant seat with Roy Moore uh, receiving, once again, uh, an endorsement? I think he got today uh, a tweet that was endorsing uh, Roy Moore. Uh, how do you see that? What is this an indication of within our society? Well, first of all, the turnover at the highest levels of this administration is mind-boggling. It's crazy. Anybody who's held any important seat has vacated it within months 
It's just crazy. I mean, from Secretary of State, which is about to happen, to Sessions, to other important uh, positions in the administration, uh, National Security Advisor, um, so on and so forth. Nobody seems to be able to stay put. And this is an indication that this is a house in shambles. It's an indication that this is a guy who doesn't know what he's doing, who turns people off, even people who are deplorables like himself, if I may say so. And, you know, even you, know, you have now McMaster and Kelly as the two semi-sane people left in, in this administration. With Tillerson out, who was, again, problematic in his policies, but, again, sane compared to, to Trump. Um, Sessions, you know, good riddance, but his replacement will be just as bad. Pompeo is going to be worse than than Tillerson, much worse than Tillerson. This is a well-known certified Islamophobe. Um, You know, he's had people like um, Gorka, who was advising him, and Bannon that have since left. So it's, it's just, it's a place, the White House is a place that is basically being buried under its own weight, and, and that is the weight of the president's, um, again, unhinged, crazy character that nobody can, can deal with or, 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 or you know, <laughs> withstand for too long. So I don't know how long this is going to take. I mean, I don't know how long the White House or America itself is going to be able to live with this. And I do predict that he will not complete his first term. Uh, and that in itself is not necessarily reason for rejoicing. Um, no, because if you it look is not. at the lineup, yep. <clears throat> um, I want I want to just transition for a moment into because I don't want I don't want the conversation to simply be uh, gloom and doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Care uh, Chicago uh, cares an organization in general, but Care Chicago uh, specifically uh, is is really known and characterized by its on the ground work. Correct. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, if people need to call. Uh, uh, as far as TAP is concerned. So this is the Travel Assistance Project, Traveler's Assistance Project. Correct. Uh, and you've got some really good news uh, recently, and I think this is, this is a moment that we should, uh, we should highlight that, talk about that, um, just to let folks know that that on-the-ground work does matter. Well, the good news is that just this morning, or actually um, during you know, midday for lunch, there was a luncheon um, by the Chicago Magazine, well-known magazine here in Chicago at the Ritz-Carlton downtown that um, honored the TAP coordinators, our TAP program, and the many attorneys who have worked at the, at the O'Hare Airport assisting travelers as Chicagoans of the Year for 2017. All right. So that is something that we're very happy about. And more importantly, it brings attention to this important program um, that when the travel ban first happened, and since then, this is the important thing, because many different groups in many different cities acted the first you know, weekend or two or three. But the sustainability is what Care Chicago brings to the table. We had the vision, alhamdulillah, early on to say, this is going to be a long marathon. This is not a sprint. And so we organized ourselves. We built the necessary digital platforms, the necessary processes. We advertised it well to the community. We you know, put in the right human resources created the proper scheduling techniques and reporting techniques and online data gathering and exit interviews and you name it. And we're able to create an entire institution out of that first initial knee-jerk, lovely effort. And as such, we now still have TAP working fully functionally to assist travelers with a hotline that can be called any time of the day, um, with attorneys on call, with the website operational around the clock, 
And so hundreds of different attorneys are working through this program to assist the travelers who need it at O'Hare. Uh, and that's just one way that we've responded on the ground. I mean, you know, t- to harness this kind of human capital. Um, today, when we fight Islamophobia, we're no longer fighting it alone. We've built alliances deep and wide that bring non-Muslims to the same platforms that we come to, to say with us that Islamophobia is un-American. We used to say it alone. Today, the more voices that say it with you, the better. And we have that going on more and more each day. So while you know the crazy Islamophobic rhetoric is on the rise, so is the anti-Islamophobic uh, responses and and proper messaging of what it means to be a citizen of this country with civil rights and human rights and to be a Muslim um, unapologetically, that is on the rise as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, definitely good news in the fact that, if anything, this only makes us want to work harder and smarter and with more people to defeat bigotry and fear-mongering, which is what this is all about. Well, congratulations. Thank um, you. And uh, we pray that... <clears throat> we pray that that your efforts continue to uh, to expand uh, and uh, reach those who are who are in need. Um, and to speak uh, to what you just mentioned about the the breadth uh, and the depth of the coalition uh, that you all have been able to build, has that been um, has that been how organic and how intentional uh, has that been? Um, is is that just a matter of, of being an activist mm-hmm. uh, and coming in contact with other activists, or has that, is that a deliberate and targeted uh, mm-hmm. approach? That's a very good question. I would have to say it's a mix of both. Um, the same powers, the same influences that caused us, that stirred us into action above and beyond what we normally do, I think stirred other groups, other communities that are also affected. And we realized, we've been building alliances since day one, but we realized that we had to up our game in terms of the intersectional work that we do as different communities. Um, As a matter of fact, the communities already intersect. For example, you can't talk about the Muslim community on one end and the African-American community on on the other end as if they're two distinct communities when you have over a third, maybe 33, you know, 34, 35, 36 percent of Muslims being African-Americans and being in both communities. Um, Immigrants and Muslims, again, a lot of intersectionality there. Um, You know, women and Muslims, over 50 percent of Muslims are women, you know, so women issues matter to us as a faith group as well as, you know, the genders that we we occupy. So um, and it goes on and on and on. Um, we stand for social justice, and that naturally makes us intersect with anybody who's being hard done, who's being violated, whose civil rights are being violated, human rights. So we've we've just been smarter now about pooling those resources into actual on on the ground action, as well as action in the halls of power. You know, when it comes to lobbying and and dealing with elected officials and letter writing and calling and stuff like that. Um, you've had activists who are not necessarily leading organizations but are well-known because of their social media activism. And then you have organizations like ours, and we've also meshed efforts together. So you have guys like Sean King with his huge following, and you have organizations like the NAACP and CARE and Southern Poverty Law Center and people like Linda Sarsour and so on and so forth, everybody working together in the same direction. That's very important. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of education that that care does. Uh, you yourself, you you um, uh, speak uh, nationally, internationally, uh, with regard to uh, making people more aware. Um, I believe you've spoken to like law enforcement organizations. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what part does? And this is as one individual. I can imagine just how your schedule is. But what? 
how can that type of effort be duplicated uh, in a way where we're reaching even more people, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. because y your cape must be getting uh, quite <laughs> tight. <laughs> quite tattered. Well, uh, that's the good news about building an institution. And that's why I believe that this was the way for me to go yeah. when I wanted to start activism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it wouldn't have been enough for me to be the, the cape, you know, type of guy, you know, flying <laughs> yeah. around. Yeah. Um, those that can do that, you know, all the more power to them. But institution building means that more people can walk into those doors and bring, you know, speak truth to power, act truth to power. You know, I just finished hanging up the picture of, of the four attorneys that were presented us at the TAP award ceremony, right. the TAP coordinators. And I told one of our new hires, this is one of my proudest moments at CARE Chicago, to be able to put a picture up there of four leaders of which I am not one. Yes. Where my photo is not included. Right there at the entrance. My photo will not be seen anywhere near the entrance. That is institutionalizing. For me, it means that after 14 years almost being in this organization, mm -hmm. there are leaders there that are not dependent on me, that I'm not, you know, the, the lead. And so there are so many more than, than these four that are working within Care, CARE's um, uh, platform. Maria Muzaffar, an attorney that, you know, and each of them are very capable people in their own right. Mm -hmm. But when they work within the institution, they bring a lot more. She's been doing amazing legislative uh, uh, work as our legislative attorney, pro bono, mind you, and has been writing important bills, and some of them have been have passed um, resolutions, you know, lobbying different people who are in, you know, Congress uh, or the State House, and coming up with strategies. And so, and she was also honored, by the way, recently in a beautiful segment on Windy City Live on Channel 7 as a four-star Chicagoan. So the honors keep coming for these attorneys that are doing great work uh, within within our, our establishment. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's just institution building and creating a space for young people to come in, established seasoned activists to come in and lead, um, you name it. That is what we need, institutions to function this way as true institutions. Absolutely. Now, Radio Slam, uh, I, I know uh, my brother Ahmed, he realized that I was being a bit facetious. Um, <laughs> there is, um, and, and just to kind of reiterate, go back to that, that TAP award, um, CARE has a reputation that it does right now, and I believe the relevance that it does now, because, uh, I, because I believe people do see it. They don't see it as a one-man operation. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, because it's just, it isn't. And, and that's, yeah. it's, you know, we tend to, we, we come from, some of us come from cultures mm -hmm. that tend to um, uh, champion the notion of Salah din you know, the singular figure that is the hero, that is the main person, who you know, et cetera. Um, but in this globalized world, in, in this fast-flowing informational world, in, in this multi-pronged you know, world and multiple communities that we serve, et cetera, that model doesn't work and will never work. It doesn't work as a figurehead in a state, as a figurehead in a government, or as a figurehead in an organization. What does work is bringing in people based on their talents their drive, their abilities, and empowering them, and letting them all be letting them all be le allowing them the space to be leaders in their own right. Everybody benefits better when if you are a leader, that is your role. Right, it's simply to be the maestro that helps coordinate. But everybody leads, and we need as many leaders as possible. Okay, and where where I need to take a back seat, I'm more than happy to do so. And indeed, I learn from our leaders. You know, they lead me, I follow, in many many ways. So, including young people, by the way. 
This isn't about people who've been around for a while. You know, there are people who come in and they're so talented and they're so capable. And I say, hey, go forward. I'll follow you. Tell me where to go on this particular area that you've shown ability and drive in. Okay, you're better than me in, in this. I want to follow you. And they lead the way, including even interns who, who show that kind of capacity. Radio Islam family, we're talking with Ahmed Rehab. He is the executive director of Care Chicago. Uh, we're going to take a short break, uh, and maybe you can meet us back here when we get back. If you have a, a question or a comment you'd like to pose, feel free to give us a call at 312-750-1178. That is 312-750-1178. We'll see you after the break. of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Hey America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. Sound Vision is starting a new initiative to provide crisis intervention to those in need. Through the crisis text line, anyone can text 741-741 and be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor who is there to listen and show empathy. The crisis text line is open to everyone. By texting the keyword SALAM, that's S-A-L-A-M, to 741-741, users will be connected to a trained Muslim counselor whenever available. You can also volunteer to undergo training and become a counselor. For more information, visit soundvision.com. Welcome back. Welcome back, Radio Sound family. This is your host, Tariq el I'm joined in studio this evening by Ahmed Rehab, the Executive Director of CARE Chicago. Uh, before we get back into our conversation, I remind you 
Make sure that if you are on social media, uh, whether it be Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you can find us all at the same space. That is at Radio Islam USA, at Radio Islam USA. Uh, make sure that you're liking, following us. Let us know what you think about uh, the job we're doing, the conversations that you're hearing. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you'd like to make a phone call to us, right, if you've got a question that you would like to ask Ahmed, uh, feel free to give us a call at 312-750-1178. Last time, 312-750-1178. Okay, we've got all that yapping out of the way. <laughs> important stuff. Yeah, yeah, important stuff. Um, so let me pose this question to you. Uh, with Islamophobia um, being the, the, the monster that, uh, that it is, uh, do you see a difference in the way that it presents itself, the way it manifests itself on a local level uh, compared to the national level? It's a very good question. Um, I think the difference, if I had to create categories of Islamophobia, the two main categories would be the knee-jerk reaction and the calm and calculating mm. Islamophobia. The knee-jerk reaction are people who don't necessarily have an agenda but are just ignorant, and I say that not as an insult, but they just don't know much about Islam and Muslims, mm -hmm. and that is ignorance. Um, and so they assume the worst. They're, the diet of information that they do have is composed of bizarre films that they've seen, snippets of the news that they've read, being in, inundated with, with all the crazies um, that, that claim to be Muslim and, and claim to speak for Islam, and that is an exclusive diet. As such, they have legitimate fears of what they think is a violent or at least an extremist kind of faith community, blah, blah, blah. And they live in places mostly where they don't interact with, they don't know Muslims. Um, so then you have those who know better. They have PhDs. They've traveled the world. They know better, but they want people to believe that Islam is a threat, that Muslims are a threat, because they have certain political agenda that this serves, whether it is a political agenda whether it is a religious agenda or a social agenda or just pure racism, pure, you know, hate and, and, and of the other. It's not so much fear. It's not so much lack of knowledge. Just They just don't like people who are different than, than, than themselves. <laughs> so uh, that latter group, nor, you know, usually leads the former group in the direction that is that becomes institutionalized Islamophobia. There's more in the former group. There's more in the knee-jerk reaction, sort of the masses of people that don't know much and then the, the, the latter group is an elite group. You know, it's not so many people like mo most elite groups are, but they lead that conversation, and, and, and they're the pipe pipers of, of the former. So that's how, you know, when we fight Islamophobia, we tend to kind of differentiate between the two because with those who don't know much, education, outreach, all of that is valid, but you can't really educate or, you know, think outreach is going to resolve the problems of the Robert Spencers and the Pamela Gellers and the Sebastian Gorkas who are in it because they're hate wizards and witches, basically. <laughs> uh, what do you think about, uh, as you were saying that, about um, these, these different tiers, mm -hmm. uh, if you will, the, the idea of the other, it is probably as American as, you know, as American as apple pie is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and by that, to, to, to extend on that, um, African Americans, the history of African Americans has been one that has been uh, marginalized uh, within the uh, instrument of, uh, of enslavement, 
Um, but then after slavery, uh, the, uh, the creation of structural, of, of systems that would maintain a certain level uh, of existence, an inferior level of existence. Um, so now we're at a point where, and we could also talk about uh, how different groups have come here, uh, like the Irish at one point, you know, when they had signs up that says, no Irish need apply, mm-hmm. uh, where they were, they were other, they were marginalized. Do you see, and I'm, what I'm trying to make a connection here is, do you see an effort to systematize the marginalization of, of Islam and Muslims, uh, much like that has been done, uh, that has been perpetrated against African Americans? Yes, because white supremacy is a reality and it is a mindset. And it has been around for long periods of time. And it basically evolves in different ways with our increasingly politically correct society. It doesn't go away. It just morphs itself in a more sophisticated form. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important for us to understand that when I talk about white supremacy, I'm not talking about capital W, capital S. Right. Because that's what white people do when they talk about white supremacy. We're not talking about the KKK. We're not talking about hooded wizards. We're not talking about neo-Nazis. Okay? Mm. We're talking about this idea that is latent in a lot of people's minds, perhaps non-maliciously for many, but they've grown up with it, that white people are supreme. They matter more. Mm-hmm. And so when there are problems that plague communities that are mostly white, these problems are serious problems, and they need to be addressed seriously. When they plague communities that are of color, they're not as serious. They can be uh, attributed to something that is you know, exotic or... Uh, just or you know orientalized in some way, you know it's the difference between crack and co- cocaine. I mean, there's so many different things, and you know how how both issues were approached. Right. Um, cocaine is you know it's a disease. You know, cocaine addicts, and you know they're doing well for themselves, but they've been tripped up, and you know we need to have rehabilitation services and uh, interventions and to get them back on track. But with crack, which um, is essentially the same thing, just cheaper. Um, oh, that's just the culture, broken families, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, what can we do? Let's protect ourselves from those who are crack addicts because, you know, they're just the enemy and the rest of us are fine. And so they're the other and we're, and, and again, what I'm talking about here is white and black. Mm-hmm. And this is just one example right. of how we've approached both differently. If you look at people who go to jail for possession of crack versus people who go to jail for possession of, you know, high quality cocaine, you, you look at the numbers. Look at the number of um, people who have been arrested, people who have been searched, people, you know, and their profiles. Now, all of this should be nested in the fact that there aren't more crack users than cocaine users. Right. It's the other way around. Mm-hmm. It's the other way around, which isn't the stereotype, mind you. Again, it's just one example. But when you talk about, for example, how we as a community and a society have responded to the wave of allegations of sexual abuse and sexual predators... Um, we've responded to it well, very late, still much more to do, but well in the sense that culturally there has been a sense of disgust, you know, um, people of power, their heads have rolled, and this has been an awakening. All of that is good, okay? But when you compare that to the police brutality that has affected black communities, when you compare that to the longstanding discrimination and racism, um, for which there has been equally clear evidence, equally public evidence, equally 
disturbing instances of abusive power, you haven't had that same reaction, you know, in our society. You haven't had that same cultural sort of uprising um, where, where you know, heads roll that are, that are basically the, the people who are making this, institu- institutionalizing this, allowing this to happen and to continue to happen. There's been the sense of, you know, the yuppies and the liberals and the whatever, you know, sort of on the ground, you know, you know protesting and, you know, Black Lives Matter, not, not to put any of this down, but mm-hmm. it's been seen by society as a fringe movement, sometimes an extremist movement. It's been, some people are polit- too politically correct to say anything more, but they'll just dismiss it or not think most much about it. Others will straight out vilify it and call it marginal and problematic. And even, you know, they're the perpetrators of violence. They're not the victims of violence, so on and so forth. Right. So, again, another comparison between the two. Now, look, are we allowed to be controversial on the show? I mean, yeah, yeah. this is the reality of the matter, okay? <laughs> let's, not, let's not pussyfoot around this. Yeah. That there are double standards when it comes to victims of terrorism who are colored versus victims of terrorism who are white. Right. When something happens in Brussels or Paris or London, the world goes crazy. There's the filters on Facebook, as we should, okay? Sure. But when it happens to people, you know, colored people in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Egypt or Tur- even Turkey, yeah. okay? It's, there's like a great, you know, grading scale. You know, the, the darker you are, the less important. You know, so Turkey gets a little bit of love, but not compared to Belgium and France, but more than Egypt, which gets a little bit more love than Pakistan and Afghanistan, which probably get a little bit more than Nigeria. And, I mean, yeah. it's pathetic. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is obviously a bit, you know, cartoonish uh, in the way I portray it. But if you look into it, there's something there. There's something there about the quality of life and how we react to it based on who. It's, it's again, just to give you one last example, um, it's the Holocaust, right? Big deal. Right. Um, I wonder if it had been six million Hasidic Jews in Yemen mm. with funny hats and funny hairdos. Um, and who didn't wear the, the you know the chapeaus and the fedoras and and the winter coats um, and the spectacles and all of you know the, the European you know sure. kind of look and, and feel if if the West if if Europe with all the laws that they have that are against denying the Holocaust and all of the attention and education obviously this came with a lot of uh, Jewish activists pushing this and you know there, there was a lot of anti-Semitism still that was that had to be fought through but I just wonder if there would have been as much of an attention to it had it been in the Semitic world, ironically, to put it that way. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Well, history shows, uh, maybe not on that on that scale, but there has been, you know, there have been uh, great losses of life. Um, King, who was it, uh, Leopold? Mm-hmm, in the uh, Congo. Yeah. Uh, there was no, there was no great outcry. Right. There was no great movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no great movement during during the uh, transatlantic uh, slave trade. Um, so, I, so I concur. I, I agree with your point uh, completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but to to I'm not gonna say to clarify, but I just want to put a just to put a little something extra on this on this point. Um, the danger of the 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 systemic um, uh, the use of systems in marginalizing people. Uh, and, and it came up, and I think we're, there were a lot of people that were really worried uh, in the beginning when we heard about this idea of a Muslim registry, you know, that was floating around, uh, uh, I think, before Trump uh, got into office. Um, this, this Muslim ban, quote, a.k.a. travel ban, um, the, the, the damage that is done in terms of the opinions that are formed by 
those people who, like you said, who do not have associations with Muslims, who don't know Muslims, there's no Muslim living around them, uh, but they're forming opinions off of Islam, they're forming of, of opinions of Islam and of Muslims from, fr from nut jobs, mm -hmm. right? But it's, but it's a systemic approach. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a cycle uh, that, that, that's taking place. Mm -hmm. And when that, and this, I go back to my readings on um, Ida B. Wells and how she documented, you know, over 3,000 lynchings, and some say they're more than 10,000, but she documented over 3,000. And a big part of her research was in looking at the media portrayal of black people and how that facilitated um, these, these, these egregious, these atrocious acts um, towards, towards blacks. And what I see, and I'm interested to, to, to know if you agree or not, um, what I see happening is that the system that we currently see of the demonization of Islam and Muslims, um, use of things like the, this, this Muslim ban, uh, ideas of uh, the profiling that comes with being visibly Muslim, that they're going to, the idea is to push us into the very same type of uh, reality uh, that existed, you know, not too long ago for uh, African Americans. Yeah, I mean, that's why the American context is so important. And for us, who are immigrants, to understand um, how that history has played out and how those same tools and theories and concepts, some of which are drafted on paper, others that are more organic, um, affect how our communities are treated and seen and how sometimes they end up seeing themselves even, self-image. Self, self yeah. Uh, and that's why it's important for us activists as we fight the institutionalized, entrenched prejudices against the various communities that we're from to also ensure that we keep our sons and daughters, our own community members, proud of who they are, their heads held up high, and to not buy into how others perceive them and then to start to perceive oneself in the same way. And okay. we both know how that plays out in, in communities that are ravaged by racism, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely correct. And I, I would add one more thing. I mean, everything we've spoken about so far has dealt with race and religion, but class is a big factor in all of this. And it intersects with a lot of it. But everything I said applies to class. I mean, those of, of – and when I say class, I'm talking about economic class, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, economic power. Uh, those of less economic power tend to not be seen as much – as worthy, you know, in terms of the lives, in terms of the famines, in terms of the uh, natural disasters, in terms of being victims of terror, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let let me ask this because um, one of the realities of of being on for an hour is that the hour flies by very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm always saying that. <laughs> uh, so before we get to that point where we are, we've lost all of our time uh, with you. Uh, does CARE have anything that is uh, anything that's coming up, uh, you know, uh, within the near future that folks need to know about that they can support? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> in terms of websites, um, the, the website to go to if you're going to be traveling or have a loved one travel that you think may be affected, um, that you would need legal support is tapus.org, T-A-P-U-S.org. The main website is carechicago.org, C-A-I-R, chicago.org. Um, the next event that we have is on Friday. It's at 6 p.m. at the Azima Gallery, 17 North State, here in Chicago. It'll be a photo exhibit 
of Chicago's refugees. And the idea here behind this exhibit is to bring attention to the, to the human faces and stories and the families of the refugees who are here in Chicago. Because always when refugees are discussed, it's global headlines, you know, breaking news, very impersonal stuff, right? It is, you know, data reports, it is political analysis, but little focus is given to the human stories and faces of, of the refugees, especially the ones who are here. Right. These are not like distant figures that we're talking about. We have many of them living among us as, as, as part of us, part of our city. So they'll be there. And their photos have been taken. My wife actually acted as a photographer, so we didn't have to spend, nice. uh, spend any money, uh, as nice. we like to like not do in our projects. <laughs> <laughs> She's a professional photographer. So she'll be exhibiting those photos. And it was co-sponsored by, the, by Northeastern Illinois University, One Chicago, which is a mayoral initiative here in Chicago that we are part of. Mm-hmm. Um, Care Chicago, Syrian Community Network, Refugee One, Greater Institutions Helping Refugees, and the Borma Task Force. Okay. What would you say... Because once again, this idea of this exhibit, it humanizes these people mm-hmm. that are often just parts of sound bites. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is the sentiment of most of the, uh, or is there overall, is there a general sentiment that most of the refugees that you have come in contact with that they have about, about being here? Many of them are grateful to have escaped situations where their lives were in immediate peril and where there were absolutely no opportunities for them. Um, that's the first thought. Mm-hmm. When it comes down to the reality of starting a life here, there are challenges, and they will admit to it. They will sometimes even complain about these challenges. But it is always with the, within the umbrella of being grateful to have to even be able to do so, right. to even be able to be here to do so. Um, so yes, I mean it's it's you know nobody wants to be uh, somewhere else. Nobody, no refugee. I mean the definition of refugee is someone who's forced to flee. Right. Okay. It is not an aspirational choice. If they could have it their way, they'd be back in Syria, safe and sound, or in the Congo, safe and sound, or in Burma, safe and sound. And these are the three groups that, w- that we photographed. Uh, but they're here because they had to escape certain death, uh, torture, um, very severe human rights abuses, famine, you know, hunger, poverty, etc. Um, but usually something that's life-threatening. Mm. Okay? And, and as you know, even before Trump, our, our refugee vetting process is very strict. So these are people who face serious challenges. And some of the kids, you know, whose photos we took, they could barely even smile. But, they were, but they're, you know, they're, a lot of them are working very hard. There's a father in a wheelchair, four children, working full time. I mean, life doesn't stop. They keep on going. Hmm. What do you think is the, uh, without being cynical, uh, I, and I say that to myself, I'm not, this isn't a cynical question, but what do you think is the, what is the, the base of the what I perceive to be a lack of uh, just a lack of empathy when it comes to this idea of refugees. It's not my problem. It's their problem. I mean, I feel for them. Um, you know, I wish them well, but it's not our job to pick up everybody who's fallen. It's this idea. I mean, again, we suffer from this double double standard where we want to be leaders of the world, especially moral leaders of the world, but then. We say, oh, we're not the world's policemen when it comes to helping people. Just just when it comes to punishing people, when it comes to taking people's resources, when it comes to something that you know gives us more power and wealth, then we're happy to be the world's police. But when it comes to the responsibility of being the richest, wealthiest, most powerful nation, to take its share, not more. Mm-hmm. We have not even come close to taking our share. Much poorer, weaker countries have taken many more. 
Okay. Suddenly, it's about isolationism and every man for himself and the jungle that is, the, you know, the world. And so we toggle between this global fellowship where you know we benefit, or the jungle, or it's every man for himself when we have nothing to benefit from. Yeah, and I agree. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. As far as the um, the perception or this identity that we hold as a leader of the world, uh, but <clears throat> uh, I guess as, as you intimated, you can't be a leader uh, of the world without caring about the world. In your share, we're not even saying, you know, daddy the world or, or mommy the world. Right. No one's saying that. But, you know, others have done a lot, you know, and we've been stingy. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is what Americans need to know. Our nation has been stingy when it comes to helping refugees. Yeah. Uh, one of the last points I want to uh, kind of double back to, we talked about education uh, or the lack thereof. What are some of the things that uh, that we can do? Uh, individually, uh, and as well as for maybe folks who have ties to organizations, what are some of the things that we can do to help to educate uh, people who don't know anything about Islam, about Muslims, not proselytizing, but just sensitizing? What what are some of the things that, in your opinion? Look, um, I'm going to morph my answer into a different kind of question. Okay, okay. Because I think most people by now who've heard me speak, have heard you speak, have heard other activists speak, know that you should call your elected officials and you should, you know, send letters and you should attend rallies and you should volunteer and all of the stuff that I would normally answer. Mm-hmm. But I want to say one thing you should do that probably many people don't tell you to do is to differentiate between being the person who complains and thinks and thinks that complaining is activism to someone who audits themselves and says, what part of my complaint has been an action? What part of my outrage has been actionable? And if you end up with an answer that is a bunch of posts on Facebook, a bunch of likes and comments, a bunch of tweets, a bunch of little conversation with your friends, then you're not much of an activist and you're not helping anybody. Mm. Outraged as you are. Amazing, eloquent Facebook writer as you are. Mm. But if you're someone who has not said much, you can say a lot, but, but more importantly, has been out there and has actually made themselves useful in terms of action mm-hmm. when called upon or leading their own actions and calling others to do the same, then, you know, you should sleep well at night. But it comes down to action, okay? You know, uh, well, we got, a, we got a second, so I got to go yeah. back to this. Uh, <laughs> I was just having a conversation around this, this, this same idea of social media activism where people see the post as being the action mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, they, they take away all of the, 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 the gritty work, all of the, the organizing, the, mm-hmm. the meeting, sitting in meetings with, with people who might get on your nerves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 140 characters, well, no, they upped it now. Is it 200? 280. Yeah, so it's 280 now. But they see that as the, uh, as the, as the real representation of activism. How does well? I think I think you answered it. I think you answered it. You know that mm-hmm. audit. But I'll, add, but I'll add to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying don't write. I'm not saying look. It's good for us. You know, when there's an issue, the more people that write about it, the better. So there is something to be said about, you know. Oh yeah, I agree. The yeah. cultural voice of social media and where it goes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's important. But don't think that that's the end of it. And don't misuse it because a lot of times it's misused. How is it misused? When you go overboard. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you go overboard. We talk about white supremacy. I don't want the conversation to be about white people. It's about white supremacy. We talk about police brutality. I don't want the conversation to be about abolishing the police Mm -hmm. or about the police. They're a good policeman. Our goal is to get everybody who wears a uniform to be a good person. Mm -hmm. 
it's not to abolish the institution. Maybe it is for some people, but for most average citizens, they just want the police to do their work and they want citizens to be safe and secure. And where they do their work, we're thankful. We want the FBI to do its work. Right. We need a safe, secure nation from espionage and from terrorism. We don't want abuses or, or you know, uh, uh, abuse of power, basically. Same right. thing with elected officials. So this is about not going too far and just, you know, using social media in a way that is counterproductive where you're just somebody who is flippant and their arms are flailing and you're all over the place. Laser focus on the problems when it comes to racism, when it comes to gender issues, when it comes to Islamophobia, when it comes to police brutality, when it comes to any of the issues that we deal with. And, and, and extract the problem in its parameters, assess it, and find a solution, right? And be persistent and strong to be able to fight the problem, right? And not never throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's the bathwater that we're after. Right, right. Well... Thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and uh, update us on the acts of, uh, of care. And congratulations again uh, to the leaders that, that you, you know, that, that are part of the organization. Uh, Sufyan Sohail, he's one yes, of them. Yes, Iman Bundawi, uh, Matt Pryor, Jamie Friedland, Kalman Resnick. And, and since it is called the TAP program, that's another justification to get the TAP dance after the show's <laughs> over. Yeah, we, all right, so we, we're not, we're not going to go live with that either. <laughs> so you just have to you just have to take our word that it happened. Uh, but once again, uh, we thank uh, Ahmed Rehab for joining us uh, in studio tonight. He is the executive director of Care Chicago. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we post this, we'll also make sure that we share uh, their link, their information, so that you can uh, keep up with them. Uh, they are a vital resource in the uh, not just in the Chicagoland area, uh, but they, they their work is nationwide as well. So uh, keep them in your dua. Uh, we pray for their continued success. And now we're going to get to the to the to the fun part. We're going to just close on out. We'll say good night. No, I'm just joking. We don't do that. We don't do that. No. So um, on the boards tonight, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg, uh, our engineer at WCEV. We're not really sure who it is over there, but thank you very much for making sure that we come through uh, nice and nice and clear. Uh, I'm your host and producer, Tariq El your executive producer has been Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, keep in mind that the views and words shared by the host and our guests are not to be taken as those of Sound Vision. Uh, and what else I got to tell you? I think that's about it. About it. So uh, we'll see you at the same time tomorrow evening, inshallah, with God's permission. And I'm going to leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.